Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. It's 12 midday and perhaps one minute after, and you are listening to 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, and this is a dog's program. No, we're not going on holiday uh, because the cause is too important for us to ever go on holiday. We are here to defend and to promote Public education. Yes, public education is so important that there's no Christmas, New Year or any other holiday uh, from defending and promoting it. And so we're here doing just that. When we talk about public education, we talk about education which is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is publicly accessible to all children and it should be publicly owned and controlled because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. And that's why, of course, it's the only one that should be publicly funded. And governments should provide a first-class public education for every child in Australia. Well, I'm not sure that the governments are doing that, but a lot of teachers and principals are doing it. And the plain fact of the matter is that state schools are the great schools and they are also the best schools. And if you pull them down by trying to take away their money and privatising it and giving their money to private schools, then none of them are going to do particularly well. And, of course, this is what is happening. Uh, Now, large numbers of people in Australia who are attached to the public education sector and are its friends, are concerned about the issue of inequality for very good reason. Our country is becoming less and less and less equal. But in the scheme of things, it's not yet as bad as America. And because of its history, it can actually look to other countries, particularly Canada, and I've got some material today to talk about Canada and what's happening in Canada, but also it can look to the Scandinavian countries. But for some reason, our Australian politicians seem wedded to the idea and they can't divorce themselves from the idea that they have to make the mistakes of the United Kingdom or America within a decade after they have been proved to be mistakes. Now... The dogs take the position of the anti-state aid. We are against the giving of state aid to any so-called independent schools, which, of course, have become dependent schools. They are sucking very, very heavily on the teat of the federal and now the state treasuries. And the money that is going to them has been very deleterious for the public sector. They're also in the business of using enormous amounts of money to promote themselves in the marketplace. And what they're promoting, of course, uh, is, is very much open to question. But the dogs take the position that there are some essential services, some rights that people have that should be paid for with public money. And When we pay taxes, that's what we pay it for. We do not pay taxes to enrich oligarchs. And there are more and more oligarchs around the world in various places that have been created by the ideology of the neoliberals. But there's a lot of questioning of this now. And I'd like to tell you that 3CR and the dogs are in the forefront. We are not alone. There is a big questioning of the neoliberal market knows best uh, 
let's produce a few more oligarchs, corporate oligarchs around the world and give them our hard-earned taxes, our hard-earned money. Let's have more and more inequalities. That doesn't matter. People don't matter. All that matter are the figures on the stock exchange. There has been a book come out in recent times. We've referred you to Piketty's book. But the latest one is by a man called Robert B. Reich called Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. It's a very interesting book. He did uh, write an earlier one called The Work of Nations um, and in a way he is perhaps an old-fashioned Adam Smith man. But he is questioning what has happened since the 1980s and the production of oligarchs. We're not living in a democracy anymore, uh, certainly not when we're ruled by the, the, the current government. We are living in an oligarchy. Let's call it for what it is. And the private schools, particularly the religious schools, particularly the Roman Catholic schools, I might add, are the servants of a hierarchical oligarchy. They back up an oligarchy which has no interest at all in the well-being of the majority. We're now talking about the 90% or the 99%. And we're not the only ones who have been questioning this. The most amazing person to question it is a gentleman called Bob Catter. And I came across this wonderful article by Bob Catter in the latest beacon of the Unitarian Church. And the Unitarians, of course, have got a program on this um, station on 3CR. Uh, They have it on Saturday mornings. I'm not sure that they'll be there this Saturday, but I'm very grateful to them for the beacon. And Bob Catter's speech in Parliament, in our Parliament, about the FTA, the Free Trade Agreement. Um, He points out that a lot of people think that Australia can produce all the food for the world that it possibly can, but he's been doing his figures and points out that um, with these free trade agreements, we're now importing food. And if we keep on going the way we are, Um, then we will be importing all our food because we won't have anything um, and we won't have anything to pay for it and we're in a very dangerous uh, position. Where are we going to get the money from? We have only two things now that we export, he says, and everyone knows that they are iron, iron ore and coal. I'm not here to denigrate those industries In fact, he says, I pray every night of my life to the good Lord that it does not come to pass, the continuation of what we are suffering in the thermal coal industry. But I would not like to be backing myself in and I will not go into the problems of the thermal coal industry. What you have is what you have in iron ore. The country has to buy everything from overseas and all they have to buy it with is its iron ore and its coal and a little bit of gold. And of course, aluminium, he points out, is doomed because it actually represents electricity and it came to Australia when we had the cheapest electricity in the world and so on. So it's very, very interesting indeed. He points out that we're living in a country that's going broke at 100 miles an hour and you cannot buy everything from overseas when you have nothing to sell overseas. And the people in this place with their market fundamentalism, their fanaticism, have imposed upon Australia a regime that no other country on earth has to suffer under. Every other farmer on earth gets 40% of his income from the government, but our poor farmers only get 6%. So he concludes on that note, and so much, he says, for your free trade. Well, this, of course, is very interesting. And I would like to point out, listeners, that the public education system in Australia, uh, particularly the secondary education system in Australia, at the turn of the century, that was in 1900, only got off the ground because of the farmers, because the farmers in the outback realised that they needed an education for their children. And not all of them could pay very, very high boarding fees to elite schools. So Mr Cutter is in this tradition, and I find it of great interest. 
when uh, education needs, public education needs friends, then uh, you think uh, about all of this, don't you? Now, Robert, all this year, has talked to us about what he finds wrong with the fundamentalism of the neocons, as you call it. But I'd like to point out another magazine, which is a an excellent magazine being produced here in Melbourne. It's the Australian Magazine of Left Political, Social and Cultural Commentary and it's called Arena. And it's produced here in Melbourne in Fitzroy. And there is a very interesting article here on a post-neocon Canada. And uh, I suggest that you, you get in touch with the Arena people. They are in Fitzroy and have a look at this article. It points out that the people in Canada still have it a lot better than the people just over in the border in Detroit in the United States, and that they know exactly what has been happening to their country because of the neocon austerity uh, rules where, in fact, the poor have got to give in again and again and again to the rich. And as a result of this, they had a very interesting election indeed because the left had lost its way in the same way as the Labor Party has lost its way in Australia. But um, in the end, the people joined together and the two parties joined together to put Trudeau back in. And the same kind of thing is happening over in the UK, where the Labour Party, when it opened up its voting, got an out-and-out socialist. Well, that's a question whether he is, of course, called Jeremy Corbyn, who is promising a post-austerity Britain, who is promising to re-nationalise all of the uh, services that have been privatised. Now, Australia has been getting, as we all know, a very good taste of what it means to be privatised with what has happened to our TAFE colleges. Uh, There has been scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. And our young people as you have been told many times on this program, are the meat in the sandwich. But overseas, we have a very interesting situation where people, again, are questioning and fighting back because, you see, the private sector has never been able and never wants to educate all of the children. And that's what the dogs are about and we've always been about. We are about all of the children of this country being equally well educated and only the public system can do that. The private system has never been able to do it. It has never intended to do it. The private system, whether it has a religious overtone or not, because that's all it's got these days, some kind of strange value overtone, its main value is this Leo this neocon idea of choice, choice, choice and individual being the main um, individual benefit being the main value, Uh, it has never been interested in all of the sheep being educated, all of our lambs being equally educated. Its whole purpose is to separate out sheep from goats and have fewer and fewer sheep on the top with more and more goats underneath. Now, this is no way. This is no way to run a democracy. This is no way to think about the common good. This is no way to have a common will or a common wealth, which is what we call Australia. Not only does privatisation not work for all of the people, it is also very bad for the Treasury. Over in Scotland, they followed America and the students had to take out loans with the government to get an education. And already, Scottish students and graduates will owe $6 billion by 2021. 
and they're protesting, of course, in London over the Westminster government's plans, listen to this, to sell off these student loan debts. What does this mean? This means that the debts of our students, our children, for their tertiary education will become a thing called securities. And it was these kind of securities, these bad debts, because unless they've got a job, they're never going to be able to pay off their debt. These bad debts were put together with good debts and sold as securities. And that was the beginning or the cause of the financial meltdown of 2008. Remember? They were securities, but actually they were bad debts that could be paid. And now we have in England the proposal that this public debt, because it is a public debt, remember these were, um, this was uh, millions, billions of our taxes or public money that was given to private providers to give an education to these children and then they are charged interest and asked to pay it back for the rest of their life. Now, those debts, according to the Westminster system, sorry, the Westminster government, it's not a Westminster system, of course, they are going to be privatised. This is ideology gone mad. But this is what our government is equally capable of doing. Uh, and, of course, the, the students in Scotland who aren't fools, it's supposed to have one of the better uh, education systems in the United Kingdom, they are not happy about this because they will have debt collectors on their doorstep forevermore and some of these debt collectors could come from any other country in the world. They could have debt collectors who are very nasty people from any other country in the world on their doorsteps forevermore, trying to force them to pay debts which have been privatised. This is actually quite scary stuff when you think about where the neocon ideology takes you, privatisation at any cost. So a forecast for The Guardian by Lucy Hunter-Blackburn, who's a specialist in higher education funding, predicts that Scottish students and graduates will owe a total of $6 billion by 2021, which is triple the $2 billion in borrowing when the um, SNP took power in 2007. And on top of that, a further $2 billion will have to be paid off by graduates in work by 2021. So it's a debt mountain and some people are even saying that Holyrood's borrowing could hit 50 billion by 2020. So this student debt is a very different form of borrowing. It's a substantial additional cost to Scottish families and taxpayers because it's owed to the government by graduates. <coughs> and official statistics show that about 445,000 Scots are currently repaying student loans with another 15,000 to 20,000 graduates joining that list each year. Now, we actually ought to be looking at these kind of figures in Australia because Mr... Um, Turnbull talks about ideas a great deal, but we have no evidence in this country that our current government, whether it was under Abbott or Turnbull, is capable of thinking up new policies that actually fit this country. They slavishly follow either the United States or the United Kingdom. But I think that that's enough from me from now. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, in fact, Christmas is a time of hope and the New Year is definitely a time of hope. Although there are pretty dreadful things happening both in Australia and around the world uh, to education, particularly to public education, there are lights of hope in other countries, particularly in the Scandinavian countries and also in Canada. 
The days of the neocons, the days of the fundamentalist, market fundamentalists, are severely numbered because they have failed. They have failed economically, they have failed socially, and they have failed morally and in every possible way that is human, perhaps not statistically, they have failed. So that's enough from me for the moment. I'll pass you over to Rod. Thank you very much, Jean. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial here on a lovely sunny Boxing Day. Um, we'll be returning uh, after some lovely calming music from George Frederick Handel. He wrote a lovely little aria, and I think it was his second opera. Anyway, I'll, I'll tell you about it when you've heard it. It's really quite lovely. Em- Emma Kirkby's a singer. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. That was Queen Adelaide. Yep, she was, she's a bit grumpy. I mean, you, you wouldn't probably tell it from the way she's singing. Um, but her husband's just been killed and the usurpers camped outside the doors of her city and she's deciding that she's not going to give in to the aggressive forces of murderers. She's going to keep fighting on. And so she thought she'd sing about it. Got to love a bit of George Frederick Handel. As I say, you listen to the Dogs Program. Um, I think Jean's revelations about what's going on in Scotland is just indicative of the, I'd call mindless stupidity of what it is that neoconservatives are actually proposing. If you think about it, 
Um, for a country to become successful in the 21st century, it needs to educate the largest number of its population to the highest possible standard. That's just how you survive in the 21st century. Probably not how you survive in the 19th or maybe even bits of the 20th, but that is, in fact, what a country needs to do. This is inarguable. If you wish to have a country who has a high standard of living with happy and healthy people, joy and goodwill to men, at Christmas and New Year's notwithstanding, um, you just have to educate the largest number of people to the highest possible standard so they can be as productive and innovative as possible. I'm sure Mr Turnbull would agree. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is, of course, you say if you want to get an education, you have to take out a loan. You have to take out a loan to the government. And then that government gives that money to the person who's supposed to educate you. But what the government's proposing is they're going to take that loan and privatise that debt. They're going to give it to some company. It doesn't really matter who they are. They could be from inside your country or outside. They can be from China or America or Australia or wherever. And then you have then, then you have a private debt. You have acquired a private debt to a private company which must be paid off on private terms with private interest rates because you wanted to get an education... For the benefit of yourself, of course, but also for the benefit of the nation. And what happens when this is transferred down to the secondary and primary level? Oh, it just gets sillier and sillier. It's all about efficiency getting in the way of effectiveness and accountability. It's, it's, it's crazy stuff. I mean, it just literally is. It's madness. And you look at somewhere like Scotland and you go, oh, my goodness, that's terrible what they're doing in Scotland. At least they're not doing it here. But here in Australia, in a very quick pace, in a very extraordinarily quick pace, over a period of three years, we have totally trashed our, um, our TAFE system. We've actually totally trashed our vocational education and training system. It is a complete and total shambles. And the only, and it's, a, it's, it's very simple. You know, how did we do this? What are the problems? The, the problems are really, really simple. We privatised it. We privatised it. We said, well, the government will give money to a private company to educate a student to a particular standard, which we're not going to necessarily oversee, and they'll just give them the money straight up. And so the vocational education and training system in Australia has just completely gone mad. It's, 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 it's crazy. First thing that happens is that the private companies that are involved in the process get as much money as they can as, as quickly as they possibly can. The second thing that happens is the kids don't necessarily get educated, or the adults because the process of training is no longer important. The process of training people in, in, in a vocational education and training private provider is actually less important than the number of students they get through the process because the whole thing, of course, has been moved online. You don't need teachers in classrooms anymore. It's all a virtual education in a virtual space, which you know, can be effective in, in certain situations. I have no doubt whatsoever. But if the process is tied up with a private provider getting as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, then the whole thing's just fallen apart. Now, I'm not just making this up. I mean, I could quote figures at you, but I can tell you that the debt that is being acquired by these students who are being enrolled in these private providers has has increased exponentially over the last 12 months and is planned to increase exponentially again, which means that the government is forking out billions and billions of dollars for training that's not effective for one simple reason. The process has been privatised. The free marketeers, the, the theologians who, who come around saying that private is good and public is bad, have stuffed the system. And now, because the government's finding they're going to get into bigger and bigger trouble because they're forking out money for stuff that's not happening... They're pulling back on it, but they're, they're not even talking about things like, well, maybe we should sort of um, renationalise the vocational education and training system. Why not just give money to TAFE colleges to do what they were doing in the first place? But no, no, that's not on, that's not on the table because, <laughs> well, there's lots of reasons because, but the fundamental one, as Jane quite rightly points out, is the free marketeers and the neoliberal economists have a theocracy that governments don't feel that powerful enough to go against. Certainly not in Australia. Certainly well, not Mark, Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, when something goes wrong, they set up some kind of a, a watchdog dog that's got almost no teeth at all. You know, these paper tigers like the ACCC. I mean, is this a consumer's problem, Robert? No, oh, I don't In know. a market, is, is education something that we consume in some way? And uh, who do you go to? Well, we used to have an ombudsman too. Um, the only person who seems to sometimes talk a little bit of sense is uh, perhaps sometimes the Auditor-General. But he only deals with uh, problems 
when the horses have bolted. Indeed. In fact, the New South Wales Teachers Federation put out a very interesting press release that relates directly to what's happening in Australia. Now, what's happening in Australia, by the way, is an out-and-out scandal. Like, it's an out-and-out scandal. If, if, if we were living in any other age, um, there would be a minister resigning. But that's not what happens, of course, these days. But the New South Wales Teachers Federation pointed out the teachers, students and the community concerns regarding the destruction of the New South Wales TAFE system have actually been largely ignored by an inquiry into that very process. Now, the Vocational Education and Training Inquiry in New South Wales released a report on the 15th of December this year. Um, and it's a failed opportunity, actually, by the Upper House to hold the coalition government to account for its destruction, its destruction of the TAFE system. Now, the New South Wales Teachers Federation president, that's Marie Mulherin, I should say, said teachers, students and their families and small businesses will be bitterly disappointed that the upper house has fiddled with while the TAFE system burns. She says, despite the overwhelming evidence that the privatisation of the VET sector is failing students and the community, the inquiry ignored the fundamental cause. TAFE New South Wales has had its budget cut by almost half, and much of that public money is now handed to the private for-profit colleges, making some operations extremely wealthy, and has come out very recently. Every day there is a new college that is going bankrupt because they are fraudulent scamsters. They have taken our money, my money, your money, and done what private corporations always do, take as much as they can, as quick as they can, and back her off. Now, this policy, you talk about destruction, what am I talking about? In New South Wales alone, since June 2012, there have been 4,600 TAFE teachers and support staff sacked. The courses have been cut across the state in areas of skills shortage. There's a massive increase in student fees, this is public or private, and the TAFE colleges are now being put up for sale because the private providers are doing their online course, apparently doing the same thing. Someone's got to do something. I mean, you can't just sit around and, as they say, fiddle while Rome burns. So that's what's happening in New South Wales, and very similar things, of course, have been happening in Victoria for longer, because, of course, since the Kennett years, uh, we have lost our centralised system. Now, there has been, on a different matter, an, a reasonably large amount of criticism of the Victorian education um, office, the Victorian Education System, the DEC, DEECD, Department of Education, Training and Workplace. I can't remember the name of the acronym. Basically, the old Education Department, because they've been involved in a large amount of fraud and corruption. Now, here at the Dogs, we often talk about public being a good and privatisation processes being bad, but here's a situation in which, on the face of it, the public system, the education department system, has been involved in a large amount of fraudulent activity. And you think, well, if that's the case, then you would have fraudulent activity in the public sector. And so maybe public isn't all that good, and maybe private might be a solution. But once you start digging down into the corrupt practices in the education department, this is the state education department, you find out where the problems are. And within our public education bureaucracy, the problems... Well, here's, here's one example of it. A little while ago, the Labor government introduced something called the Ultranet, which was an internet for and with and between schools to protect students in all sorts of ways while being in the school from the horrible influences of the internet, um, which I'm sure our listeners might understand might be dangerous for emerging young minds. And so they developed the Ultranet, which was a protected closed system where the children could access the internet for learning but be protected from the more nefarious elements of the dark corners of the internet. But this whole process was completely disastrous. It was $180 million spent on it, and it was scrapped because it just didn't work. Now, the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission here in Victoria, which is the toothless version of ICAC up in New South Wales, announced um, just a little while ago that it would turn its attention to the Education Department's Ultranet program, and the hearings have just started. Now, the new inquiry could be actually politically damaged politically damaging for both um, political parties here in Victoria, and we're not particularly interested in that. I'm interested in the root cause of what happened. Now, it follows this, this um, revelations that the whole process related to, you guessed it, the privatisation, the privatisation of, of this whole process. 
what happened was the alternate, the contract, was awarded by a fellow called Darren Fraser, who is a bureaucrat in the education system, to a Darwin-based um, group called CSG Limited, and this was done in 2009. Now, Mr. Darrell Fraser no longer works as a bureaucrat in the education department. He's now working in Dubai. Um, he's now the Director General of Education for Dubai. But before that, of course, um, he accepted a job uh, after he left the education department with, guess who? CSG. So he awarded the contracts to the company and then he went to work for them. And interestingly enough, at the same time, the former Director General Manager, John Allman, bought shares in CSG um, just before it was announced as the winner of the Ultranet contract, by, which was given by the Victorian government. Also, regional directors Wayne Craig and Ron Lake also purchased thousands of shares in this company just before the contract was awarded. So what's the problem here? Well, we have corrupt officials, but what is causing the corruption? The corruption is caused by the process itself of privatising the functions of the education department. For $180 million, you can actually hire people to work in the department to create exactly what it is that you want. Why do you have to privatise it? Why is privatisation always good? Well, the answer is it's not. Certainly in this case, it creates the opportunity for corruption. And so even when you talk about the problems in the state education bureaucracy, it always comes down in some way to, again, this bugbear, this free market, this idea that the governments can't do anything. You have to privatise the functions of government. And there's two reasons for this, of course. One, the opportunity for kickbacks. And two, it distances the minister from responsibility in their portfolio. Mm. Yes, ministerial responsibility went out the... Out the window a long, long time ago. But, Robert, I think it also has to be said that a lot of this ideology started 40 years ago and it started because the private sector of the education system was pushing the ideology of choice uh, and privatisation, that private was better always than uh, public and that individual... Belief systems were more important than the common good. And in fact, the corruption was endemic in the Roman Catholic system and no doubt it still is because there is no accountability. At least in this case, at least in this case, there has been some accountability. We've now found out what happened within the education department and there is an inquiry and it's going to come out into the open. Look how many, many, many years, how many generations it took and it was only because of Gillard's Commission of Inquiry that the extraordinary um, sexual abuse of children in the Roman Catholic system has come to light. And it's not just the Roman Catholic system, of course. It's also in all of the uh, religious schools, particularly in boarding schools, where religious men have been placed in charge in loco parentis with vulnerable children. And it's taken so long for this to come come to light. But their use of funds and what has actually been going on with the billions and billions and billions of dollars of our public money for the last 50 years, that is the scandal which we are actually not hearing about. But we do sometimes see what is actually happening now with these privatisation people in the TAFE sector because now there is going to be a whole generation of young people who are debt-ridden, who have almost no hope of setting up families and having a roof over their heads. Mm. I find it quite, quite shocking. Yeah, we, basically we've found a generation and we've got to sort it out real quick. And if people aren't going to get to the root cause, which is in fact the privatising of the system, then this can, this, it's not just going to be one generation, it might be two. Well, please don't blame the dogs because we've been here fighting all this time. And, so, and we continue to fight. And we'll yes. fight after the break too, after these messages. You listen to the Dogs Program, Defence of Government Schools, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and, of course, podcast. When the last hour of your day rolls in And you 
Tune into 3CR from December 21 to January 17 for summer programming for a great selection of community radio treats and an eclectic range of summer specials. You'll hear highlights from 3CR's Unique Beyond the Bars 2015, documentaries and current affairs, historical reflections on HIV campaigning, and one-off specials like the David Bowie fan retrospective. Language programs such as The Voice of West Papua, Focus on Palestine, and Summer of Creek Resistance will run throughout the season. And don't forget music specials, The Reggae Groove, The Raven's Lair, Music is My Radar, Wayward Girls, Wicked Women, and Gaelic Music on New Year's Eve. Visit 3cr.org.au slash summer specials for a full schedule. There's still plenty of reasons to stay tuned to 3CR over summer. had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dole on a lovely sunny boxing day. Um, Dale's got something to tell us. It's an interesting story. It's a sort of anecdote sometimes pops through the media in one form or another. Some of them are deeply informative. We often talk about systems and structures and, and, and departments and, and neoliberal cons, but in fact it's all about the kids, it's all about the people, and sometimes it's all about the parents. Dale, there's a little story that's popped up through the media landscape that I think is worth sharing. Thanks, Rob. Uh, this is a story from the Sydney Morning Herald uh, from Monica Ducks, entitled, But Mum, That Can't Be Right, The Private School Myth That Doesn't Add Up. One thing you discover when you become a parent is that small children are real suckers. When my, when my son was two, my husband had to restrain me from telling him that if he didn't eat his vegetables, his arms would fall off. But he'll really believe you, my alarmed husband insisted. Precisely the point, I replied as I tried to spoon steamed broccoli into his stubbornly closed mouth. Children are prone to believing such things because they're still figuring out how the world works. When I was a kid, I understood citizen's arrest to be a real thing and was constantly threatening my recalcitrant friends with incarceration. It was also generally agreed in my social group that doing too much karate could stifle your travel plans for your hands would have to be registered as lethal weapons before you could enter the United States. I also believed, as did many of my Catholic peers, that using a tampon would deflower me. And my friend Anne was convinced that riding a bicycle while in bathers was illegal and that anyone caught in charge of a pushbike while so attired risked immediate arrest, probably by an irate citizen. Think too hard about these myths and even a child will realise that they can't be true. But they're also kind of exciting and titillating, so most kids prefer to just accept them, which is why they're so durable. The same is true of many adult myths. My favourite, which is accepted by a remarkably high number of grown-up Australians, is that elite private schools are entitled to all the bells and whistles they enjoy because parents have paid for them. This quickly falls apart if you think about it. Private schools receive huge sums of money from the public purse, very nearly as much as government schools. If that money was being used to keep struggling private schools afloat, then it might be justified. But in many cases, it is in fact used to fund the educational excellence that we hear about in private school advertising campaigns, state-of-the-art sports grounds, pools, outstanding facilities of every kind. As commentator Jane Carrow recently observed, one school is now providing on-site baristas subsidised by our taxes. 
The myth that underpins this, that parents are simply making a choice and are, them, are themselves funding that choice, serves to obscure the gross inequality at the heart of our education system. The implication is that parents who send their kids to state schools should stop complaining about the under-resourced, overcrowded public system because they've chosen it. They weren't willing to pay, so their kids deserve what they get. As a teenager, I was acutely aware of this divide. It was first pointed out to me in grade six when one of my classmates informed me that the high school I'd be attending was a dog school, the crap Catholic school where no one really wanted to send their kids. She, on the other hand, was going to the superior private school with hats, pressed uniforms and various state-of-the-art facilities. Naturally, I was upset by the revelation that my school was for canines, as I'd naively assumed my parents had chosen to send me there because it was closer to our home. But my classmates' spitefulness put me in my place, reminding me where I was from and what my parents could afford. I don't know whether my nasty classmate got a better education than I did, but I'm pretty sure she would have come away with a greater sense of entitlement, the self-confidence that typically, and the self-confidence that typically goes with it. For entitlement grows naturally out of the myth that justifies the system. Her parents paid for her superior education, made sacrifices to afford it, so she was entitled to the benefits that it brought her. Yet, once you recognise that the taxpayer is footing a very substantial part of that bill and that elite private schools are effectively siphoning funds away that could have gone to the state system, you see the equation very differently. Far from being entitled to anything, children who benefit from expensive private educations are in fact indebted to the ordinary taxpayers who subsidise their swimming complexes and their baristas. It's everyone else who made the sacrifice, sending their kids to underfunded state schools while the private sector hogged the education dollar. As we grow older, most of us stop believing in myths such as citizens' arrest. When will Australia grow up and see through the education myths that are doing a disservice to all of our children? Thank you very much, Dale. It's worth pointing out to our listeners that the Australian system of funding of education is almost unique in the world. What Dale is referring to there is the public subsidising of elite private schools with usually a religious basis of one form or another. There are, so, there are almost no other countries in the world that do this. Mm. So not only is it a myth, it's a particularly strange one that only happens here in Australia. Mm. I mean, to continue on with this vein, I mean, what about those kids in the state schools that, that this woman's saying went to various dog schools or mm. whatever it is you're talking about? Well, there's one particular school which I think is a really interesting example, and it's a successful state secondary school. There's an interesting article here, again um, from the Fairfax Network by Tate Papworth, that refers to a sort of a day in the life of McKinnon Secondary College. Now, McKinnon Secondary College is a very interesting example, and I think this is a happy story because it's a successful school, but for me it's tinged with a bit of sadness because the solutions that it offers aren't things that are being taken up by the various people who are responsible for these sorts of things. But... The principal of McKinnon um, is a woman called Pitsabinnan who tosses and turns each bed in night, according to this article, agonising over decisions she had to make during the day. A lack of sleep and the never-ending list of worries are all part of the privilege and the price of leadership, she says. As the principal of one of Victoria's top public high schools, McKinnon Secondary College, Miss Binnan carries the heavy burden of community expectations on her shoulders. Now, McKinnon regularly ranks in the top 10 schools in VCE scores among public high schools. This year, half of the Year 12 cohort achieved an ATAR of 80, and 77 of the group were above 90. And with this success comes high expectations. The hopes of parents and the well-being of her staff and students weigh upon her. She says, It worries me constantly. I worry about maintaining and improving our standards, supporting people so they don't burn out, and the overall well-being of staff and students and making sure our community continues to be really proud of the school that we have become. Now, despite these worries, Mrs Binnan largely attributes the school's academic success to the active involvement of the community. She says, Because it's so competitive, we find that those who do not move into the area, oh, sorry, those who do move into the area to be one 
in the zone to take education very seriously. We put that with an international students we take each year, and that means the majority of the students here place a high value on their education, and that's really reflected in the results we achieve. In many ways, McKinnon is a victim of its own success. Fifteen years ago, the school saw a spike in the VCE results, and since then the population within the school's tiny zone has more than doubled. In 1997, when Mrs Binion started, McKinnon had a total of 1,150 students. Today the school has almost 2,000. It doesn't show any sign of slowing down either. The average Year 7 intake has risen from 200 students in 1997 to 360 in 2015. Now, keeping up with the rapid growth is a challenge, and the school has received funding for a three-storey building to help ease the school's population crisis. But it's still not enough. I need another school. Plans to alter the enrolment policy so the school is not obliged to automatically accept children who live in the zone have long been mooted and might have been implemented soon. A prospect Mrs. Mrs. Um, the principal, Mrs. Binion, does not like. We follow a very strict enrolment guidelines and we accept everybody living in the zone, which is part of the problem. I hope that doesn't change in the next few years. I really don't want it to, but we take everyone in the zone and get about 580 applications for 300 places. Mrs Binion said she wanted every child to be known and known well, but large class sizes were a challenge. In junior years, they reached 30 students, as well above the statewide average of 26. The simple solution of hiring more staff isn't an option because there aren't any rooms to put them in. Now, despite the large class sizes, Mrs Binion said the school's standards hadn't slipped. She said, we're a very good school. I want to be an exceptional school. Now, after two years of work, the school recently received international accreditation, process that meant demonstrating the school met 32 specific standards. The accreditation means the school will be recognised around the world, giving both student and staff opportunities on a global scale. It's about being aware that our little part of the world is not just raising children who will be working in this neck of the woods. It's about raising global citizens, she says. It's such a small area and our children will be engaged in work all over the world. Now, her head of English, Jason Jewell, believes the role Mrs Binion has played as a principal has been instrumental in the school's sustained success. He concedes the classes are too large, but insists Mrs Binion's relentless dedication to school and staff minimise such issues. He says, she calls me almost every night, normally at 10 o'clock, to talk about issues that have arisen during the day. It's all part of making sure staff are accessible and on the same page. And he uses a terrible phrase. He says, moving forward. Shame on you, head of English, Jason Jewell. But anyway, I forgive him. Mrs Binion is completely immersed in her work and clearly loves her job. But becoming principal wasn't something she always saw herself doing. She actually comes from a non-English speaking background and the first in her family to go to university. She had overcome numerous hardships to become a teacher. Hardships, she said, had given her the tougher edge required to be a principal. McKinnon is her seventh school, and while she might not have initially seen herself as a leader, others did and presented her with numerous opportunities. As such, Mrs Binion is very aware of the difference she can make as a leader and mentor in shaping other people's lives. Um, her school organiser, Rosie Patterson, said her door is always open and she takes time and she follows up. She may not always give you what you want, but she always tries. Now... I can go on talking about this principal who's obviously done a very good job in a state school. Bear in mind this state school is not a selective state school. It just takes kids from its local area. It did well in one year in 1996. The reputation of the school got out and so therefore the thing snowballed. She's doing a wonderful job. But as Jean quite rightly said, and I'm sure we'll say again, the solution to this principal's problems is so clear. And what is it, Jean? New school. And, and, of course, they closed schools um, that could now be used. Uh, Mr Kennett, uh, and I suppose, well, why did they think the private schools that they thought would take over would go anyway? Here we have in the inner city um, $52 million from Haleybury being spent on a, on a huge building which is completely unsuitable for a school in King Street. I mean, uh, 
the situation is ridiculous. However, what concerns me about such a, a person is that her career stops there these days. In the old days, her career would have stopped as Director of Education. And what we need in our Department of Education in Victoria are people who have experiences of our wonderful public schools and who have proved by their actions that they are committed in word and deed to a public system and they can bring the extraordinary abilities which they have developed as principals and administrators in our schools into the education department and that is not what has been happening since the Kennett or even before that years. There was a a glass ceiling placed upon teachers and principals and very, very few of them got beyond that stage. Uh, And we need people like this in our education department backing up and giving advice to and helping our people in the front line. Yes. At a very systemic level, the solution to that problem, and I agree with Jane, is you look at the school next door. And then you look at the other school, next door on the other side, and say, well, why aren't the kids going here? Let's sort these out. Let's actually improve the education, not just for the students at this one school, but for the students in the local area. And then that spreads out. You take what works, and you look at what's next to it, and then you fix it. You just do that. You put the money and the resources into the people who are doing the good jobs. And congratulations to that. The one good thing about Gonski is that at least it takes that attitude, that uh, where the money is needed is that where it should go. But uh, the New South Wales public system has always been much stronger than the Victorian one, and uh, their HSC results uh, have some very interesting um, uh, selection points, if you like. Chris Bonner has analysed them and he's pointed out that, uh, yes, the difference in HSC performance between the sectors is significant because the comprehensive schools, it's just 3% compared with 9% for non-government schools and 35% for selective schools. Now, selective schools are, in fact, in the public system up there. But the good news is that there are a number of schools that have bucked the the trend. And the interesting one is one from Coonabarabin. And listen to this this headmaster. Um, It's the likes of educators such as Graham Enks, who's the acting principal at Coonabarabin High, that makes victory for his children in the HSC possible. This comprehensive school has an ICSIA of 925, so these children are from backgrounds which are below the average income level. And in some cases, they have, they have in fact done better uh, than schools with a much higher ICSIA of 1,100. Every student in his engineering class and that engineering class had five students in it, achieved over 90% and one was placed 10th in the state. That's not bad for a little country high school. So how did they do it? Mr Enks, who retires this year after more than three decades in the profession, leads a small but dedicated team of teachers and they never let the distance beat them. If they needed to go to the city for something, they just put the children on the bus and they went. So you don't let things stand in your way when you're battling for public education for all the children of Australia. But you've been listening to the dogs and we're very happy that you've allowed us into your your home uh, on this uh, Boxing Day. But it's time for us to go, so bye for now. Bye for now indeed. You'll be listening to the Dogs Program. And if you want to catch up with us and find out more about the press releases and the articles we've been talking about, you can check us out at our website, www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, bye for now. Smiling with his eyes Says Joe what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize 
from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw Dead. I never died, says he.